This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Okay. Parshva Eira, everybody, 5783. Parshva Eira, We're going to do two psukim here. Ali, how are you? Parshva and Parshva Gimel. These two psukim deal with a very, very similar idea, but they are different. Pasachov says, Vayikach Amram is Yocheved Isha. Amram took for himself Yocheved, his own aunt, as a wife. Vatevublo is Aaron Ves Moshe. She gave birth to Aaron and Moshe for him. And the years of Amram's life were 137 years. Now, there are four major questions that you have to ask in this Pasuk. Number one, why, does, why in the world did Amram marry his aunt? We're allowed to marry a niece. A man is allowed to marry his niece, but an aunt is not allowed to marry her nephew. That's number one. Why did Amram marry somebody that the Torah would later forbid, and that led to Moshe Aaron? Number two, why why not mention Miriam? Why is Miriam not mentioned in the Pasuk? Amram, Amram gave birth to Aaron and Moshe, but it didn't say anything about Miriam. Number three, why mention the amount of years that Amram lived? Who cares? Why does it matter? We happen to know that Yochavid gave birth at the age of 130. That's because she was should have been the daughter of Levi, as we'll see. Levi and Osa was the name of his wife. But what in the world is the Pasuk trying to tell us with this? And number four, what's the idea of the word lo? Vatelet lo as the word lo seems a little bit strange. In Pasuk of Gimel, it says, Aaron is Elisheva, Achos Aaron took Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav, the, bro- the sister of Nachshon, as a wife. All four sons that we know about are mentioned in this Pasuk. But again, the strange part over here is, why mention Nachshon? Why is Nachshon playing a prominent role over here? What's the idea behind it over here? Okay. Amram was an absolute great person. He died without sinning, says the Gemara Bavavastra on Testament and Aleph. He died without a sin, which means there couldn't be anything wrong with him marrying Yocheved. If there was something wrong with him marrying Yocheved, then he married his aunt and Maxer Grushaso. Remember the Medrash that he divorced his wife and then he went back to her, right, afterward? According to the Medrash, or the Yonasim, targeting Yonasim Nazil says, she got married to someone else in between, at least Tzafim Parnach, and therefore... Because of that, she was sort of Maxer Grushaso. It doesn't matter because she was still his aunt. But the Torah couldn't tell us that he was over on this Isser. If the Gemara tells us very clearly he's one of four people who never sinned, what exactly are we trying to say with that over here? The Zohar in Shmos, page 19, says his name possibly means Amram, a high nation. In other words, he gave birth to a person like Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was the leader of the nation, the, 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 really the quintessential that being of what represented Klau Yisrael, and therefore he's called that. The Rabbeinu Ephraim says, Yocheved's name is Yudvav, that's the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and then Kavod. She gave honor to the Shekhinah, she gave honor to HaKadosh Baruch Hu by doing what she was supposed to do, and giving birth to Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam were the leaders of Klau Yisrael, obviously. And interestingly, Rav Aryeh Kaplan says her English name is Yokebel. Jokebel? Has anybody ever heard of a Yokebel before? Before, like a non-Jewish Yokebel? You know a Yokebel? Are you serious? It's an actual like city. Oh, Yokebel is a guy who plays for the San Antonio Spurs. That's absolutely hilarious. It's a girl's name. 
but it's it's biblical. It's the way the Septuagint quotes Yochaved. She's called Jokabel, Jacobel, something like that. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Okay, Victor Miller says each one of these names was an original expression that represented their devotion to Hashem. Amram means the people of the Most High. Yochaved means God is my glory. They named their children after these ideas because the idea behind it is that each one represents something great. So a union between two people that go together like that is obviously going to be great. That shows you their greatness. Even in exile among a nation of idolaters, like the people of Mitzrayim, they were still very great people, and that's what it led to. That's what Victor Miller says. Now let's get into the actual problems themselves. Rashi says the Pesach means exactly what it says. Yochavid was the sister of Amram's father. She was the daughter of Levi and Osa. Osa was the wife of Levi, the sister of Kahas. Kahas was the father of Amram, and that's the idea. The Mizrahi says that Rashi has to explain that because sometimes Dodaso means the wife of the uncle. Meaning, the uncle of a person and his wife is called Dodasso. So maybe you'll think that she's not really his aunt. She was his uncle's wife, which I guess is one, you know, relative removed from, you know, being so bad, etc. But either way, it's interesting. that That's why Rashi says straight out that Dodasso is his actual aunt. There's no Kasha. It's Levi's daughter. Dasakinim says because Moshe Rabbeinu was born from a man who married his aunt, that's why the Pusik doesn't mention Kares directly by one's aunt, by one's father. Father's sister, because Moshe's mother was from a relationship that was exactly like this. One can assume that Kares would apply in the same way, but it doesn't say it directly. It only mentions an uncle's wife, and you sort of learn a Kalva Homer that Kares applies by an aunt itself. But this is the idea behind that. Might be also why we don't mention any direct punishment for marrying sisters. Even though we know that marrying sisters is a problem, but there's no direct punishment given in Parshas Kedoshim for it. The reason why is because Yaakov you know, married two sisters. So even though right, these things were going to be answered by the Torah later, since the Avos did them, Amram and Yocheved and Yaakov with Rachel and Leah, therefore the Torah doesn't mention anything directly about them, even though we know that it was considered Asr later. Now according to that, Yocheved and Amram definitely did something that was wrong according to the Torah later, and the only way to get around it is by saying the Torah wasn't given yet. That's that. That's how you get around it. Torah wasn't given yet, so that's that. That's the Canaan says that Moshe Rabbeinu was born from a man who married his aunt. And I'm sorry, I just said that. The Chizkuni says that a Kaddish Baruch who was Maskim, he wanted this relationship to have to come from Moshe Rabbeinu. In other words, for Moshe Rabbeinu to come from a relationship that was somewhat bad. So to in order for him to have less of an ego. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu was the most humble person of all time. This just helped it because his parents were born from, he was born from a relationship that was going to be answered by him later on. That would allow him to be less egotistical. Yeah, yeah, go The, the exact same thing. And he, the Chizkun even brings that down. He says, Shaul HaMelech was like that. He was from Shevet bin Yamin, right? Who had just been wiped out in Pilagish Begiva. David HaMelech was like that because we have a whole Shiloh about who his parents were with Yishai. And, well, that's a story for another time. Basadol, the story for another time. And so too, just Rusa Moabiyah. Remember, Rusa Moabiyah and Boaz led to David HaMelech. There were huge questions about that. The Gemara in Yuma on Chav Bezim says, we only appoint a leader who has a 
kupa shal sheretz behind him. In other words, he can look behind him and he sees there's something a little bit wrong. There's something that's a little bit off. That's what we do because we don't want any leaders, we don't want anybody getting up there and saying, I deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. It's difficult sometimes when you have a person who's in charge who's never had anything go bad in his family or any questions about his lineage his entire life for that person to relate to people who might have a little bit of an issue, who might have something that might be questionable about them. Because he's just, he has that ultimate ichos. It's difficult for them. I think that's the idea behind it over here, to show that there's something a little bit better. That's the chizkuni. The chizkuni says that. Now the shach says that Kaddish Baruch Hu allowed it to happen on purpose. The reason why he says because the sultan would never think that the Mashiach, the most, the savior of Klau Yisrael, could come from such a bad relationship. The same way we have Yehuda and Tamar. We have Lot and his two daughters. We have Rus and Boaz. All those relationships which are questionable, so too we're going to have that by Moshe Rabbeinu. So he flies under the radar. You get the idea? Like this, this way the Sutta will look at it and be like, there's no way Mashiach is going to come from this relationship. This is a guy and his aunt. This is a person that's questionable. That's the idea why a Kodesh Baruch will make sure there's no accusations, no kitrugim, nothing like that, right? Moshe was overlooked and therefore he survived in these strange way possible. That's the idea behind it. That's it is. Some of the most successful people in Klau Yisrael came from questionable relationships. And that's the idea behind it, right? A Luzer. Look at a Luzer, Ben Aaron Akoin. He didn't father his father's lead, follow his father's lead. His father married into Nachshon Ben Aminadov's family, a tremendous family of leaders and ma- massive kings and everything. And who did a Luzer marry? The daughter of Putiel, who fattened calves to a Zara. Elazar ben Aaron Akoin married a Gioris. And I know, Kohanim are not supposed to marry Giorisim. But Elazar is before the Torah had assured such a thing. So again, Elazar marries somebody, and he had Pinchas. The child was Pinchas, who killed Zimri, who did some crazy things because of that. Maybe it was only because he came from that relationship that, Zim, that Pinchas was able to do what he ended up doing. That's an amazing shach that goes through the power of every single person, no matter who you are. But that's an amazing shach in it all together. There's an Umunisi Techa that talks about this as well, but we're going to skip that for right now. If we go on, not everyone says that she was forbidden to Amram. The Miyam Loez, quoting the Gemara Sanhedrin, says he was his father, she was his father's paternal sister. Meaning, Kehos, Amram's father, and Yocheved were brother-sister from the same father, but they did not share the same mother. Yocheved was born from Osa. And Kahas had another guy. I know Osa doesn't sound like a real name, but it is. The Gemara seems to say that Osa is a real name. And Kahas is born from another mother. Before the Torah, relationships went by the mother, not by the father. And because it went by the mother and not by the father, they weren't considered actually related to one another. And because of that, we were okay with saying that Amram is going to marry Yochavid. So again, the way the Miam Lois puts it, and it's a Gemara, it's an Adrian, they were related, half brother and sister, and therefore half of an aunt for Amram to marry Yochaved, but they weren't actually related before the Torah was given itself. There's Yushalmi Yavamis Perak Yud Aleph Halacha Beis says the exact same thing. Then Etziv says the word lo is added to this Pasuk because even though Amram was keeping all of the mitzvot, he kept everything. And as we said, he never sinned. He did everything he was supposed to do when he saw something that went against the Torah that he knew was the right thing to do. Like this, marrying 
Yochavid, knowing that Yochavid was his rightful wife, and that's the person he was supposed to marry, he did it. Yochavid was low, was set for him, and he knew that. And therefore, even though he knew that it would go against one thing in the Torah, he said to himself, this is what I want to do. And I imagine that this is purely L'Shem Shemayim. I can't imagine Yochavid was that young, that she was able to marry Amram, and Amram was the same age. I assume Amram was much younger than Yochavid. Remember, Yochavid gave birth to Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam when she was 123, 100, 124, 127, and 130 years old. When Amram married her, I have absolutely no idea. But this must have been a relationship which was L'Shem Shemayim in the right way, knowing this is the right person for him to marry, even though it was his aunt, even if it was just a half-aunt, says the Nitziv, lo, it was meant for him. Him. It's the exact same thing later on in Pasuk of Gimel. The low again, without a doubt, Aaron's schus together with Nachshon's schus helped him have the children that he had. There's no question about that whatsoever. The Chidah mentions that low as well, the Lamed Vav. If they weren't supposed to be married to one another, Hashem wouldn't have allowed a miracle to happen for her to give birth at the age of 130. Again, she gave birth. This is a whole kasha in the Gemara. The Gemara says, why are Mamzerim ever born? Childbirth is a miracle. Why would Hashem allow a miracle to happen for a guy and a girl that shouldn't have been together in the first place? Why allow Mamzerim to come into the world? Why allow them to even be born in the first place? Just say no. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the way the Gemara answers, the Gemara in Avodah Zarah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows people to make their decisions and then allows the natural ways of the world to continue. And childbirth is, it might be a miracle, but it's a natural way of the world. But says that the Chidah, but that's only for a natural birth. To give birth at the age of 130 means you're dealing with a supernatural birth. Without a question, nobody gives birth that old. Sorry, I mean, it was a miracle at the age of 90. And Yochavit is giving birth at the age of 130. That means that something special must be from this relationship. And even if you say, well, there must have been a sin because the Torah is it later, it's clear Hashem wanted this to happen because a miracle did happen at the age of 130 for them to be together. And for that reason, Vayikach Amram S. Yochavit Dodaso, the Rashi Tevis are Vav Ayin Aleph Yud Dalid. It's a gematra of 91 for Yud Ke Vav Ke and Aleph Dalid Nun Yud. The way you read it, Yud Ke Vav Ke, and the way we, we say it out loud, right? We, I should say the way it's written and the way we read it, right? That's 91 altogether to show you that God was involved the entire way. There is Ravaria Kaplan. Again, I don't know what his source is for this. He, I think he quotes the Septuagint again, which is a non-Jewish source, technically, that Yocheved was his cousin. It was Levi's son's daughter. So Amram married his first cousin, which in nowadays we'd say that's kind of sick, right? But back then that was done and that was normal because obviously they didn't, you know, they didn't have too many people they could marry. So that did make sense. So either way, I would go with the ant board. I wouldn't even go with the half ant thing. I would go with this idea of the Nitziv and the Chidah that clearly it was meant to be an Amram realized this. He had Ruach HaKadosh, possibly it was even a Navi. So that makes the most sense. But then why mention his name? Well, his name, his age. Why mention 137? Why does that have to be mentioned in the Torah? The fact that Amram is 137, we don't even mention Yochavit as being 130 when she gave birth. We just know that from a medrash that she was born when they came down to Mitzrayim. Why do we have to mention Amram's age? What's the point of that? Steve Barbanel says the reason why is because he was as choshev as his grandfather Levi was. Levi was choshev. We mentioned how long he lived. Amram was choshev. He was equal, so to speak, in his generation. That's the idea, that Amram was so special we're going to mention his, his age. Kahas, we mention his age. We're going to do that to tell you how special they were. 
But Targum Yonason adds on a line over here, which bothered me to no end. I've got an answer for it, but it bothered me to no end. He says, Amram lived until he saw the children of Rechavia, the son of Gershom, the son of Moshe. Now, here's the problem. We don't know when Moshe got married exactly, but doesn't it sound like he got married right before he came back to Mitzrayim? Gershom sounds like he's a kid when he comes back to Mitzrayim. Eliezer was for sure a kid. He didn't have a bris milah, but Gershom, I I don't know. I would assume he was a kid. Now, it's even possible that Gershom himself was the one that didn't have a bris milah and that he was super young. There's a big question about that. But there's no way that Gershom was like, I don't know, 50? Do you think he was 50 years old? Do you think he was 30 years old? It certainly doesn't seem that way, especially if you go with the metric that Moshe Rabbeinu was the king of Kush for 40 years and then went to Midian. Then he went to Midian afterward. I can't imagine that Gershom is very old, but Targum Yonason is saying that not only did Amram meet Gershom, he met Gershom's son. Gershom's son, that means Gershom had to be old enough to get married, have a child, and that Amram met him. Now, the next time we see Gershom, Gershom never made it to Mitzrayim. Gershom was on his way down to Mitzrayim with Yochaved, with, I'm sorry, with his mother, right, Moshe and his wife, um, Sipporah, as well as Eliezer. But then they stopped at an inn, and that's when they got sent back. That was in last week's Parsha. Gershom never saw Mitzrayim itself. The next time he comes in is by Matan Torah. Does that mean that, again, that Yisro either left Mitzrayim, visited his son in Midian, saw that Gershom had grown up and already had a grandkid and then went back to Mitzrayim? Or does that mean that, that Amram was old enough to be alive at Matan Torah when Gershom came back, either right before or right after Matan Torah? And not only did Gershom come back, but Gershom was married by then and had a kid. I just, I, I, now I have a real problem. We said that Yochavah was 130 when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, okay? Amram was 137 when he died. He's 137 years old when he died. Moshe is 80 at Matan Torah. 80, right? 137 minus 80, guys. I know you can do this. Come on, you can do this. 137 minus 80 is the age of 57, 57 years, right? That means, and again, I'm, I'm not, I, I just, I, I find this stranger than strange. Did Amram at the age of 57 really marry an 130-year-old? Is that what happened? And not just an 130-year-old, but let's say it was before, so 125, right? By the age of Miriam, because she was 86, what, 124. So was he 51 and married an 124-year-old? Is that really what happened? Something seems really off about that. That's, I don't know if you guys are great at math. I'm just going to assume that you have this down. But if we have this down, that's a large gap. A large gap. 130 to 57, just so we have this on the table over here, is a difference of 63 years. 63 years. I don't think there's ever been that type of relationship. Even in America, where you have a super, super rich guy and a girl that obviously wants the money. I don't think that's ever happened before. And again, I said before that I'm almost the same Shemayim. I have no doubt about it whatsoever. This is just a really 
really strange thing. My only thing I can say of this is that Moshe Rabbeinu Mamish got married super early. Gershom had kids. They went down to Mitzrayim at some point before the Torah says that Moshe Rabbeinu went down to Mitzrayim, saw Amram, and then they went back. Or that Amram left Mitzrayim at some point. It's just a really, really hard shot. Now, Rabbi Chiyom Michal Feinstein, he points out, there's a Gemara in Baba Vassar, Kupchaf Alephama Beis, that Amram saw Yaakov Avinu. Amram saw Yaakov Avinu, who died 17 years into the Shibud. If Amram lived 137 years, he died 50 to 60 years before they left Egypt. Forget about being around by Matan Torah. He died 50 to 60 years. Once Moshe Rabbeinu left, he never saw his dad ever again. And it makes sense because Amram, do you guys remember what happened at the Sneh when he saw the burning bush? What voice called out to Moshe Rabbeinu at the Sneh? Amram's voice. Well, Hashem only does that when the person's already dead. You only call out HaKadosh Baruch only calls his name on somebody who's already passed away so Amram had to have been passed away by that time so I, I, Feinstein says it makes the most sense to be able to say that again he suggests maybe Gershom was born much earlier he had children and grandchildren before Moshe Rabbeinu came back but still there's another problem Rechavia the one that Targum Yonason quoted is the son of Eliezer, not of Gershom. If you look in Divrei Yomim, we mention the children of Eliezer, and one of them is Rechavia. You mean to tell me that Gershom and Eliezer both had a kid by the name of Rechavia? They've both had one? And this Rechavia, the son of Gershom that is not mentioned anywhere else, all of a sudden appears over here in a Targum Yonason that Amram saw him? It's so strange. It's so strange. The only answer you can give for this is Sarachian. But then I found an Igritakala who gives an absolute genius answer. The Bnei Yisrael. Yeah, what were you going to say? It also makes sense that the Egyptians didn't, didn't they didn't mind if one person left and then came back. So did Amram actually leave and come back? Yeah, yeah it's just a strange thing. But by the way, that but that also means that Gershom was old enough to have a child. And it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem like he's more than just a kid when he comes down with, why in the world did he and Tipora bring back Gershom and Eliezer and not Gershom's kids if Gershom already had children? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's just weird. It's a very, very strange thing. But I, 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 I'm, not argue, I'm not arguing for the sake of arguing. I'm just saying, like, it's very, very strange. But the Igritakala has a brilliant answer. He says, maybe we're only counting Amram's years after his sons, Aaron and Moshe, were born. And that's why Miriam's not mentioned here. Remember before I mentioned, we didn't mention Miriam yet. Miriam's not here. Because the Rokeach also, he gives a different answer for this as well. But the way that Igor Dekalo says is, he lived 137 years after Aaron and Moshe were born. Aaron and Moshe were three years apart. So I don't know if that means 137, 134. But that's when they ended up going through, which Amma must have lived a very long time. I don't know how old he was before that. He was 137 plus 80. So he lived to 217, right? I don't know. I don't. I have absolutely no idea how long he ended up living. Maybe he did enter Eretz Yisrael. Maybe he did see all his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Maybe he did. But 137 years afterward means 80 years of Moshe Rabbeinu, right, after he was born. 80 years of Moshe Rabbeinu. And he still lived another 57 years. Another 57 years, which means he would have entered Eretz Yisrael. 80 plus 40. The 40 years they were in the mid He lived in Eretz Yisrael for 17 years. That would be the idea behind it. That's the Igor DeCalo's answer. I have no other answer. I have absolutely no other answer that I could give for that. Okay, now we get to the second part. Nachshon. 
Nachshon ben Aminadov. Who was the guy? We know he's a very important person. He was the Nasi of Shevet Yehudah and Bamidbar Parakal of Pasuk Zion. He was the ancestor of David Amelach. The end of Seferus mentions Nachshon ben Aminadov in the list that goes all the way back and mentions Nachshon. He was the great, great grandson of Yehuda. His father Aminadov was the son of Ram, who was the son of Chetzron, the son of Peretz, etc. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says the reason we mention over here along with the children of Aaron and his sister is to show how Malchus and Kahuna came together. Nachshon stands for Malchus. He was the leader of Shevet Yehuda. Eventually, David Amela comes from him. Aaron obviously married his sister. That was Kahuna. That family had Malchus and Kahuna connected to one another. Chassam Sofer says, Nachshon is mentioned because he jumped into the Yam first. Remember? He's the first guy that jumped into the Yam and everybody's like, what do we do? What do we do? Nachshon another went up to his nose, was ready to die in order to go into the Yam Suf, and that's when the Yam Suf split. He was a pure leader of the Jews. Mistama was Godur Me'arayah, stayed away from bad things. One can assume that Elishava acted the same way, and that's why Aaron married her, because she was an extremely special person, mirroring her brother, and that's why the brother is mentioned here to show you that Elishava was just as great. Just, she didn't have the opportunities that Nachshon had, being the woman that she was, but she was just as great as her brother Nachshon. Rokeach says that Korach claimed that Nachshon only attained his position as Nasi because his sister married into Aaron's family. Just like he said that Elitzapa must have paid himself off to become the leader of the Levium. That's why Korach is mentioned over here as well, says the Rokeach, because that's what he claimed. He claimed it was all nepotism. One after the other, there was nepotism involved, and that's why. Rabbi Yol says that this is the translation of the bracha by Shevet Levi. It referred to Moshe Rabbeinu himself. He says to his father and his mother, I didn't see them. When Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah, it didn't matter to him that some of those laws would affect his own family. Even though his father and his mother weren't allowed to be married to one another. Alpi Dintaira. He still said it. He still mentioned among the Arias, even if he did not see them as if he didn't see them, right? Even though he wanted to be the Kohen Gadol and his sons to serve in the base of Mikdash, he treated his sons as if he didn't know them. Hashem doesn't want you guys to become the Kohen and Gadolim. So that's it. There's nothing I can do. So he said, I don't know you. He said that to his kids. And although Aaron complained that he didn't want the job of Kohen Gadol, he said to his brother, I don't recognize your 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 complaints. I am making you the Kohen Gadol because that's what Hashem wants. Whether he thought it to be the right thing to do or not, it doesn't matter to me. That's what's going to be. Yalku Ruveni number 29 says the most amazing connection. He says, Dovin Amalek was always destined to marry Bat Sheva. Notice the name, Sheva. Aaron was always destined to marry Eli Sheva. What's the difference that Aaron married Eli Sheva in a mutter way, but Dovin Amalek married Bat Sheva in a bad way, spilling the blood of her husband Uriah and taking her when she was still technically married, even though she might have had a get? Why does it have to be the way? And he says, David was a warrior who spilled blood. Therefore, the marriage between him and his destined, the one who was supposed to be the father of Shlomo Melech, had to happen through Midas Adin. Aaron was an Oev Shalom and a Rodev Shalom, always looking for peace. Therefore, it happened through Chesed and Rachamim. That's why Aaron's wife is called Eli Sheva. God is with me. For Sheva, while Bat Sheva is not exactly Sheva, so to speak, almost like a little bit apart. That's the Alkurveni. That's the connection between the two names, Bat Sheva and Elisheva, between 
Aaron and David Amela. Okay, Rashi says in Pesachov Gimel that whenever someone gets married, always check out the brothers of your future wife to know what the children are going to be like. Always do that. You see a girl, see what her brothers are. If the brothers are good people, marry into that family. If the brothers are bad people, don't marry into the family. If the brothers are split, eh? <laughs> you don't know. No what? If there's no brother, nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. What? Flip you flip a coin. You might as well flip a coin, right? Or just see if the girl, so girl herself is good. You can also, that might work. <laughs> so you go, you can, okay, you can be okay with that. Listen to this, guys. This is probably, this is up there in my favorite gematria of all time, okay? The Rabbeinu Ephraim gives an all-timer. Look at this. Es Elisheva Bas Aminodov Achos Nachshon Lo Leisha is the gematria 2,593 as That is unbelievable. Yes, I did the entire thing. The only thing that's a little bit off about it is that Mikan is spelled with an extra Yud. Aside from that, it is an, this is an all-timer. This is an all-timer. I'm fine if you would have been off by 13. I would have been fine with that. But it's exactly 2,593. I'm sorry? There wasn't, though. Like, you can see it. The, the words in the Pusik are the words in the Pusik. That you don't do. But this, that's perfect. <laughs> that's really perfect. It's crazy. Tzel Ha'eda says another idea. He says, Achos Nachshon Lola is the same. It's 1201. It's, you know, not as great. I suggest you look it up yourself, but I, I did the whole Gemachri. I spent some time with a calculator. I figured it out. It's 100%. This does work out 100%. The Korarie explains this idea a little bit. Why look after the sister's, you know, the wife's brother? Why them? So he says, children don't necessarily follow the mother. Because women are considered built-in nishlam. Apparently, back in the day, by the times of the Gorarie, I don't want to argue this point nowadays. That's something that my wife would probably kill me on. That a woman is considered still incomplete until she gets married. I'm assuming the same thing applies by a guy. But there's still an incompletion until she marries her husband. Because I guess the husband is the influence in the family, or at least was at the time, to be able to help. I don't have to be so PC. Yeah, the guy is the, the absolute influencer, right, and taking care of everything in the house itself. That means that they weren't fully formed. When you marry a girl, you have no idea what the wife is actually going to be like. This is what she's like at this age. But who knows what she's going to be like a few years down the line when she gets married and what she's going to be with kids etc you have no idea what she's going to be the only way to tell is to see what a fuller picture of this woman is and that usually is her older brother the older brother who's already been married already been out there already done his thing that's the way to tell exactly what the woman is going to be like because that's what the wife is probably going the sister is probably going to end up being like her brother out there the problem with this idea of the Goraya is it seems to me and again I could read this in a different way. But it seems to me that it's going based on an older brother, not a younger brother. Don't base the woman that you're marrying, base what your children are going to be like based on her younger brothers because you can't tell. The younger brothers, you have no idea what they're going to be like when they get older. Wait for those younger brothers to get older and when they get older, you'll see what they're like. Then you'll know, right, what they're going to be like. But otherwise, I assume that that idea of the Gorari only goes by an older brother or a, a, you know, a, a more nishlam figure. That I think. But the Be'er Basada says, it's not just the brothers. Check out the parents. 
He says, culture can't check out the parents. It's that you can even tell from the brothers, says the Be'er Basada. It's not Dafka, the brothers that we're looking at. It's the brothers and the parents and the whole family. Look at the family. Look what's going on with the whole family. If the family is a good family, then marry into them. And if not, not. It's love Dafka, the brothers and the sisters themselves. That's the idea behind it. Because think about it. Aaron married into the family of Aminadov, Right? And in the end, Elazar married into Putiel's family. Why Putiel's family? Obviously, there are people out there that shouldn't have been the greatest. Putiel was a person who did a Vodazara. This is Yisro. But Yisro was a great person. At this point, that's when Elazar knew this is the person I want to get married to, and he understood it. The Igrit Akala says, now it explains something that happened later. Because Nakshon was a father of kings, his nephews also became kings. The Kohanim ended up becoming kings by the times of the Hashmonayim. Where did they have kingship in them? Where did they get Malchus from? They got it from their brother, I, you know, all the way back when, of Nachshon ben Aminadov, who was that king at the time. They did the exact same thing. And that's why Hashmonayim, he says, is 455, the gematra of Aim Nachshon, because the mother, from the mother's side, they were related to Nachshon. That's the idea behind it. So what do you check for? What are you going to look for when you look at, a, at, at the person's brothers? What are you looking for? Are you looking for like a tremendous Talmud Chacham? you looking for like a tremendously bright guy? What are you looking at? You're looking at the brother. You want to marry into the family. What are you checking for? So the Ayelis HaShachar, this is Steinman, says, look for proper Midos. Does the guy have proper Midos? Does the brother-in-law, does he act properly? Or is he a guy who's just like, you know, like scarfing down food and he's a slob and he acts like uncouth? Is that the guy? Don't marry into a family where the brother-in-law is acting in such a way because where do you think children learn those Midos from, etc.? Rav Sturmbach in Tam Vidas says one should look for the Midah of Mesiris Nefesh. We know nothing about Nachshon ben Aminadov at this time except that he jumped into the sea. The fact that he jumped into the Yamsuf. And I know that hasn't happened yet. We're still in Parshat era. But that's the Midah that Nachshon Minyadov is known for. Look for mysterious temperatures. This guy is the brother. Is he willing to give up on certain things to be the person that he wants to be? Is that something that's going to happen? Midos comes from family. Yiras Hashem comes from individuals. They cannot be assumed they'll be there from one family to the next. So you have to look at that Midah of mysterious Nefesh. Is there mysterious Nefesh in that family? Rizzo Zilberstein, you know, Lena Shabbat quotes the Sefer Hasidim who says it's better to marry the daughter of an Amma Aretz who's generous than a Talmud Chacham who doesn't give away his money. Again, marry the daughter of an Amma Aretz who knows nothing, who's a generous guy, than the daughter of a Talmud Chacham who is stingy with his money. Maybe the hint is from over here. And again, we're not saying anything about Aminadov or anything like that. But listen to the idea. Elisheva was the daughter of Aminadov. My nation is generous. Before, she was the sister of Nachshon, who was a Talmud Chacham named after a snake. I guess that's the stinginess involved over here. That's the hint. Not that Nachshon was evil or that Nachshon was stingy. Not that Aminadav was more... It doesn't mean that. It means from the names themselves, says the Sefer Hasidim, or the Lenu Shavach is trying to make a diak over here, that a person should marry one over the other. Maybe he learns it from over here. One time, there was, there's a very similar story to this. I'm not going to go through the other story. But one time, two businessmen were conducting a deal in a very prestigious hotel in Tel Aviv. It was a very, very nice hotel. As they were conducting the deal, I guess this was done. 
I, I don't know. I've never heard of this. The guy brought out like a pile of money, maybe like a suitcase of money, you know, with those hundreds of dollars of bills and brings out a suitcase, puts it on the table, right, to show that he's very serious about the deal. Before they're able to finalize the deal, before they're able to finalize everything, right, all of a sudden, the alarms go off in the hotel for a chifetz chashud. Remember those? You know, a suspicious little object, right? And everybody starts running. So they all had to leave the hotel. In the panic and the confusion to get out of the hotel, the guy forgot the money. So they're outside the hotel. They're not allowed in. The bomb squad goes in and everything. And as soon as they open up the hotel, they run in. They mamish run in, right? And they go to look at the table. It's gone. All the money is completely gone, right? The guy was so upset. The guy who had the money, who hadn't yet bought the deal, you know, he hadn't made the deal yet, he was super upset. He was just like, what, what, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I just lost, he just lost a ton of money. It wasn't all of the money of the deal, but it was a huge amount of money. A couple weeks later, right, a Haredi man happened to pass by that hotel. He happened to be in the lobby of the hotel, right? And he heard about the money that was lost there. So he's like looking around, you know, he's looking around different places. And all of a sudden he saw like a potted plant that seemed to be off, you know, like they're always in like a row and whatever it was. One of them was like a little bit off. It seemed a little askew. He went over and he saw that there was a bag of money, not like a suitcase, but a bag of money underneath the potted plant. Clearly one of the workers, for sure not Jewish, but one of the workers, right, we have to assume that, right, one of the workers that was there saw the money on the table, realized it was the chevetz chashud, immediately ran to get it, and then put it by the thing, but didn't have time to go get it by the time everybody ran back in. So he was leaving it there, waiting for the right time. This Haredi guy pulled out the money and then went back to his rov and said, Shiloh, he had a Shiloh, Do I, can I keep the money? Is there yush? Did the guy give up hope on ever getting it back? Or no, Right? Do I have to give it back to that person? And the Rav said, right? He said, there's a sock on this, and it's interesting. Shita Mikubetzis and Baba Metziah Chavdalat says, when you have workers that are not Jewish, even if the area is Rov Yisrael, and you're dealing in Tel Aviv in a hotel, it probably is Rov Yisrael. But if there are workers that are not Jewish, there should be Yush. And you can keep anything you find there, even in a shoal, he says. If you have non-Jewish workers in a shoal, then you can keep anything you find there because of Yish. Now, whether or not the guy heard it, he heard the psak, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. It was a huge amount of money. He just couldn't do it. He found the guy, the guy who lost it, and he goes over to that person's house. Right? He goes over to that person's house and he says, he, he knocks on the door and he shows him the money. And he says, I found it in the hotel. I came to return it to you. The guy was very, very impressed. He told him, I'm not taking it. Not taking it. He claimed, the very wealthy guy claimed, he had given up hope of ever getting it back. He was Miyayish. And he said, it's obviously a kapara from Hashem. I accepted it already. I took it upon myself to accept it. So I don't want to take the money back. But the guy said, I don't feel right taking it. The Haredi guy said, I don't feel right taking it. It's your money. And I know it's your money. I don't feel like I can take it. So the guy said, the wealthy man like nodded his head. He said, do you have a son of marriageable age? He said to the Haredi guy. The Haredi guy said, yeah. He said, I have a daughter. I have a daughter. Normally this shidduch would never happen. But how about we use this money for them? And we have them meet. And if it works out, then our kids will get married. And they'll take this money and they'll have the money themselves. So they met. And I, I don't know, maybe they... they 
you know, I'm sure they compromised a little bit and they only went out three times instead of once for the Chassid and, you know, like a hundred times for the other. So I don't, I have absolutely no idea. In the end, Tanayim were written up, the plate was broken and it was 100%. This is a Shidduch made in heaven. There was no way for these people would, that they would have gotten a Shidduch in any other way. But a Kurdish Baruch Hu put it together and allowed that to happen. And for that, right, you have a Shidduch, said Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein. That was the story behind it. I tried looking up this story, by the way. I don't know if anybody knows anything behind this story aside from what I just told you. I tried looking it up. I could not find it. I didn't know the keywords to look up, and I looked up Tel Aviv newspapers to try to find out around the year 2002 to 2005. I figured that was the easiest time for Chifetz Chashud. I could be off, but Alain Jabach was also written around 2005, so I assumed it was around that time. If anybody knows any details from the story, if you find this anywhere else, I'd love to see it. Anyway, there are questions on this, obviously, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm just going to run through them really quickly. Did Yaakovinu check out the brother of, you know, of Rivka Yimenu before he married Rivka? Because Rivka's brothers love him. So, Yitzchak, I'm sorry. Did Yitzchak, you know, check it out beforehand? Clearly, they didn't check into the brother themselves, right? Otherwise, why would you go ahead and marry into Rivka's family? So, is that an automatic klal or is it not a klal? There's questions about Achos Neva Yosef. Chachamim talks about this. Chanukah Satoira brings it down. He brought Blyb Sarach in. Well, I bring it over here. There's Maral Diskin over here based on a Marsha and Baba Basra, Kuvyud. There's a Moshe of Zakanim and a Tamid They're all mentioned over here, but I'm not going to go through any of that. You can all look it up yourselves, and I'm sure you will. The point of these psukim says Mayana Shaltaira is to tell us that Moshe and Aaron were born to human beings, not Malachim. There were regular normal people who made mistakes at times. Right? They married he married his aunt. There was something that was wrong with the relationship. That's the idea of Anis, but they became great Nabiim leaders of Klaiusra because of their own greatness. They grew into it. They were not born angels. They became the Malachim that they became in the end. Therefore, anyone can work hard. Anyone can be a Moshe and Aaron. And that's why we mentioned this here. We mentioned who they were. Ramosha and Darash Moshe, Ramosha Feinstein, brings down another lesson. Moshe Rabbeinu's parents are not mentioned by name until later. So that we don't publicize who they were, right? And they didn't publicize how proud they were of their son. Never did Amram Yocheve go around and say, like, hey, do you see our kid? Do you see our kid? Do you see what he just did? He split the sea. He just gave all these makos. Like, that beats any doctor and lawyer's son, you know, out there that you can possibly get. This is who our son is, right? They knew he was born with a special light. They knew that he was the person that Claudius Roll had prophesied, that Miriam had prophesied about. They knew about it. Some people think that their children becoming great people, right, they say to themselves, maybe I should just stay out of the way. And then he'll be a great person. I don't have to do anything. The more I get involved, the more I'm going to ruin him. The more I get involved, the more I'm going to mess him up. Says Moshe Feinstein, the opposite is true. The more you see your child is great, even as a kid, the more chinuch you have to give him even then, said he can become greater and greater and greater and greater. The greater he is, the more he'll notice, the more he'll be affected by it. The greater he'll be. Don't give him an ayin hara. Don't allow him to grow up on his own and figure everything out on his own. Because after all, if I get involved, maybe I'll mess him up. Always learn more with a child. Push him more than you would with somebody else. When you for, for anybody else, be very careful with him, even in, when he's older, to make sure that he becomes the person he's supposed to be. And that's Amram Yochave. They knew Moshe Rabbeinu was born great. They knew he was born with a light in the house, and they still taught him everything. They still pushed him, and I guarantee you, because this is the style back then, they still beat him up when he didn't learn properly. I know that's 
a no-go nowadays. We shouldn't do that nowadays. But I have no doubt that that's what they did. And they probably did it even more so knowing that Moshe Rabbeinu was greater and had higher expectations. Okay, that means just push your kid a lot nowadays. Not push like that, but like push. <laughs> like that. that. That's the idea behind it. But that's the lesson. The lesson is no matter how great your kid is, keep pushing, keep pushing, because that doesn't mean that you get a free ride after that. Shukai, everybody. We'll stop right here. Have a great Shabbos.